Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The avant-garde director, Andre Gregory, believes that theater is a metaphor for life. You get kicked onto the stage, you struggle for a few hours with your problems and those of the people playing scenes with you, and then you exit. Andre Gregory's life in and beyond the theater has been filled with incredible experiences, which he wrote about in This Is Not My Memoir. Later this hour, my interview with Andre. First, among the joys of reemerging from isolation during the pandemic, is returning to gather as an audience for live performance, theaters, comedy clubs, dance, and music venues are welcoming back audiences after the unprecedented halt due to COVID-19. Spivey Hall, just south of Atlanta, is one of the world's great venues for classical music. Sam Dixon has been the executive and artistic director of Spivey Hall, and he joins us now via Zoom. Sam, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Initially, this was to be a conversation about returning to live performance. But I just heard that you have some big news related to yourself. Why did you decide to retire? <laughs> oh, there are many reasons for retiring. And they sort of came together in, in several different ways and several different moments for me, Lois. At Clayton State University, we've had for 12 years a wonderful president, Dr. Tim Hines, and he's been my immediate supervisor, and he's always been a wonderful, strong supporter of, of Spivey Hall. And he announced his retirement some time ago. He and I meet regularly, and in one of our meetings, I heard myself say, I cannot tell you how much I envy the freedom you're about to have. And when I heard myself say those words, it was like a bolt of lightning went through my body. And then I thought, hmm, 
there's going to be change here. We have experienced extraordinary changes in the last 18 months. And I won't belabor the difficulties that Spivey Hall faced as we had to respond to the pandemic. But I will tell you, it was really personally hurtful to me to have to see a whole season of programming just wiped out. That really did affect my life and my sense of self for a while. But I'm so proud that Spivey Hall was able to regroup and show up online. And we presented 15 uh, virtual concerts and, and they were very well received. But in that same time, there's been this tremendous shift in, in American society and in, in our culture as well. And such things as the Me Too movement, such things as Black Lives Matter, such things as the incredible you know, social divides there are politically in the country and how they played out in Georgia. And of course, the presidential election and the aftermath of the election in Georgia. I mean, all of these things were very, very actively in my consciousness working at home. And I also decided at one moment with all of these changes, we would have a new president and we would need to address these challenges and these changes. And a new president always initiates a new cycle of long range planning. It's sort of like when you look into a microscope or a telescope and you're trying to focus and suddenly there's a moment of clarity and things, things are sharp. And I thought, hmm, this is the right time. I've been in this job for 17 years. It's been an immensely wonderful privilege for me and a great pleasure to serve in this role as executive and artistic director. But I do think arts organizations periodically need renewal. And renewal comes from new ideas, new ways of thinking, new individuals who participate in deciding what matters and what we should present, and also the opportunity to, to respond to what changes are. And I decided it's best now for me to pursue some personal needs rather than professional needs. I've been in the music business since 1984. And except for the time when I was in California, immediately before I came here, when I called myself suboptimally employed and had lots of time on the beach, <laughs> I haven't had a break. I've been doing you know, multiple concerts most of the time, and it's been work first since I got out of business school. I feel right now, at this time in my life, I want to do some things while I have my health and I have the opportunity to, to travel, but also to explore other aspects of music making that are not job driven. So this was my moment. I, I seized it. It surprised a lot of people. It surprised me, but increasingly I felt it's the right choice, not just for me, but I think also for Spivey Hall. What are some of those musical opportunities you want to pursue? Well, listening for pleasure in sort of a, a free association way. A couple of years ago, I gave myself the complete Schubert leader recorded by Graham Johnson, the world's best Schubert leader singers, and his three-volume Yale University monologues on these incredible songs. I want to spend a lot of time listening to those. I've always traveled for music. It's wonderful to go hear musicians and hear, hear them live, see them live, because only then can I really sense how they might work at Spivey Hall, for instance. But I sort of miss the orchestral repertoire. I miss the opera. 
And when I've been working so hard at Spivey Hall, I hadn't been going to the Atlanta Symphony as much. I hadn't been going to the Atlanta Opera or to Emory or to New York or back to Australia or you know the places I would, I would go for music discoveries. So that's something I wish to do. And I don't have a deliberate plan for much of it, but the freedom of doing it is one of the joys that comes with it. Ah, uh, will you remain in Atlanta? I think so. There's a transition still to happen. We have a wonderful new president. Dr. Stewart is the new president of Clayton State University. I'm looking forward to meeting with him and there's going to be a search for my successor and there will be a transition and I'm happy to help with the transition in any way I can. I also have a big house. It's quite large for me. And when you get a big house, what do you do? You fill it up with stuff. <laughs> I've decided that I want to live more simply. In Sydney, when I lived, worked in Australia, I had a tiny apartment with a fantastic view of the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. And I know I can live with very little and be very happy. The pendulum has swung in the opposite direction here in Georgia, where I've been for the longest time as an adult any place in the world. But I also feel that I'd like to downsize and I need time and energy to downsize because I still have literally 7,000 CDs in my home. Oh. I can't keep them all. And I've got a lot of books and furniture. So I'll do that. But I'll also be thinking about what next. And I'm going to be composing my own retirement. Retirement is what anyone can make of it. And again, I'm going to do that in a way that will be organic and probably nonlinear, but it will be mine. Okay, well, you failed at retirement once before, Sam, I remember that. Yes, I had the need for change a couple years ago. This time around, I'm also responding to the fact that I lost my father in 2019, and my internal clock started ticking more loudly. I also, we've lost some wonderful Spidey patrons in the last couple of years as well. And this is another very personal reminder that we don't have all the time in the world. We do have to make choices about what matters to us. The music continues to matter deeply to me more than anything else. That has been the supreme reward. The music has always been the reward for me, but the relationships with artists and with patrons and the staff at Spivey Hall and, and the artist managers who have been the continuity throughout my professional life these are things that I will take with me, but I also feel again that at this time, it sounds selfish, but no one will give this to me. I have to put life first rather than work first. It doesn't sound selfish at all. Sam, will you remain as executive and artistic director through the upcoming 2021-22 season? Actually, no. My final day in this role is July 31st. <gasps> so it's coming right up. But of course, we will have announced our next season, which the last I will have curated for Spivey Hall. Again, I'm willing to participate in any help my successor might need and my staff might need in this time. There is something wonderful, the University System of Georgia, and it's called the Teacher's Retirement. I'll be taking a pension, and I have to be a full pensioner for the month of August. But after that, I have some freedom to do things again with Spidey Hall, if that's what the university wants. Mm. 
A moment ago, you spoke about these major changes that came with the months of the pandemic, a reckoning with racial injustice, a continuation of the Me Too movement. In your retirement announcement, Sam, you mentioned, quote, major waves of change in American culture and society that will strongly influence the future of many institutions, including those of higher education and the performing arts. And then you say their responses will likely require serious examination, evaluation, and recalibration of their goals. Would you elaborate? That's a, uh, there's a lot to say about that. I'll try to be concise. I think we are just having to re-examine who makes decisions about whose work is represented, who has access to what we present, who is on stage, why is that person on stage, who decided why that person is on stage, how will this programming relate to what our audiences care about, how will the best of what we've done continue? But how can what we have done be reimagined in ways that can be more fully representative and more fully inclusive? And the, the model that Spivey Hall is working under hasn't changed very much in its first 31 seasons. As you know, my predecessor, Cheryl Nelson, opened Spivey Hall in 1991, and she put the place on the map with incredible artists and wonderful programming and very important special events that had a very broad and far reach in the world. And I was so pleased to be able to, to work and continue building on her fantastic achievements. But at the same time, we are a suburban venue, and it was created by Walter and Emily Spivey. The Spiveys wanted a place for fine music on the south side of Atlanta, which is an area that traditionally had been underserved by the fine arts. And Mrs. Spivey had a very clear idea of what she wanted. She wanted piano recitals. She wanted organ recitals. We have this glorious organ that she made possible. She wanted it to be a place where she could welcome her guests as, as if it were a large salon. And the Spivey Foundation continues to represent that original impetus and that original vision for Spivey Hall. I think it is imperative that that vision be honored and respected and that it be maintained. And I'm certain that the Spivey Foundation trustees will continue to do that with Clayton State and whoever sits in my chair at Spivey Hall. But it's more than that. There has to be a recognition of who our student body is, what their educational opportunities are, what cultural backgrounds they come from, what their learning objectives need to be, how Spivey Hall can extend the reach and the value of its programming to people who may not be familiar with what we do or simply cannot come down to Morrow, Georgia from wherever they live or up, depending on where you're coming from. You know, the, the, the world of streaming is here to stay. And we are well 
well positioned to extend the value of our programming in that way. We've got the equipment and we're developing the know-how and particularly for people who have mobility issues or, or you know, the distance too. We realize that we have fans literally many places in the world who will tune in to what we want to do. But it's also time for a re-examination. And coming from business school, I do believe in strategic planning. And I know that the new president, Dr. Stewart does as well. And it's time for Spivey Hall to think broadly about the value of what we do, how we can extend that value, how we can extend that reach, how different types of programming might come into the mix without necessarily being an either or situation. I mean, in music, we can have lots of things, but at the same time, Spivey Hall is a very particular acoustical space. It has incredibly beautiful and sensitive acoustics for string quartets and, and voice recitals and choral works. It's like an instrument unto itself. And you know, Lois, from having attended, it's a sublime place to hear music. I'm gonna be spoiled the rest of my life. I'll always wanna hear music like I hear it at Spivey Hall. Oh, yes. So it doesn't lend itself to every genre of music, but it it's, could still lend itself to many genres of music. And the challenge will be to find the support, both financial and in terms of audience engagement, to initiate and sustain programming that reflects the wide variety of possible audiences we would like to welcome increasingly at Spivey Hall. Sam Dixon, soon-to-be former executive and artistic director of Spivey Hall. On July 18th, the world-class venue will announce their 31st season schedule. You can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash the field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Theater director Andre Gregory vowed never to write a memoir, hence the title of his book, This Is Not My Memoir. We do learn a lot about his life, which is extraordinary. He joins us now via Zoom. Andre Gregory, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Your parents fled Russia for Berlin, then Paris, where you were born in 1934, later escaping to London, and finally New York. You write that you were only one of three Jews at 
an elite private school in New York. But in those days, the early 1940s, you believed you were Russian aristocrats. Why? I think that was a fiction that my parents invented, partly because they wanted us to assimilate, even though we had escaped Holocaust Europe, there was still an enormous amount of anti-Semitism in the States. In fact, as late as, oh, I think about 1962, my late wife and I tried to get an apartment in New York and we were denied the right to buy the apartment by the board because I was a Jew. So uh, I think uh, I think my parents were trying to protect us. They were all also somewhat pretentious and wanted to assimilate on a rather large scale, which was how they, you know, finally were able to hang out with the likes of Garbo, Dietrich, Vladimir Horowitz, Yasha Heifetz, just an amazing group of people. And they managed to do that because they were, quotes, society people, unquotes, under the mantle of being aristocratic Russians, they were able to create a rather glittering salon. So when did you finally learn you were Jewish? I guess about a couple of months after I got out of college, I was lunching with a friend in a New York restaurant. And a friend of mine who was at college with me came up to me and said, is it true you're Jewish? And I was mortified with embarrassment because of course, having disguises as Russian aristocrats rather than Jews, I think I was quite anti-Semitic at that time. But I changed all that later because I worked uh, in my, oh, I guess early 50s with rabbis. I learned Hebrew. I could chant prayers in Hebrew. So I had been a closet Jew who came out of the closet. How did appearing in a school production of Shakespeare's play The Tempest teach you the therapeutic power of acting? Well, I've been ousted. I think I think this was another act of anti-Semitism. I've been ousted by my school. I've been accused of doing something I'd never done. I think this was uh, with sexual innuendos. Uh, In fact, uh, being one of the brighter students at school, I've been accepted at Phillips Exeter, uh, a very intellectual boarding school, high school. And my school wrote them to say I wasn't morally fit. So I was turned into a pariah. And I guess because I was a very polite and at that time repressed young man, I never expressed the pain, rage, or anger 
that I felt as a result of the anti-Semitism and as uh, a result of this scapegoating that was done to me. So when I went on the stage in the school play, I looked out at the audience and I saw all these teachers and these parents who had falsely accused me of doing something I'd never done. And for the first time, I was absolutely filled with rage and pain. So that as I said, the lines of the play, the lines had a subtext of a very emotional subtext. So I was learning the basic rule of acting. In that moment, I knew how to act. And from that moment, theater was my addiction of choice. Yeah, you could describe that as your drug to relieve the pain of living. Your mother did not defend you to the school administration. How was that possible? Well, I think in those days, parents always assume that the school is always right. So I was automatically wrong. And then on top of that, my father... Uh, had entered the first stage of a very severe bipolar disorder. So he was in a way going insane and a lot of my mother's energy went towards him. I was fascinated to read that for a period of eight years during the 1940s, your family spent the summer at a home in Los Angeles owned by the Nobel Prize-winning author Thomas Mann. Would you tell us about those summers your family spent in L.A.? Oh, they were glorious. You know, America had always, as you know, been bordered by the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. So America always felt safe from any outside invasion. And I think it was part of the reason why we were so horrified and shocked by 9-11 was we just didn't believe that we could be attacked. So California during the Second World War was sort of like the South of France before the Second World War. Uh, you know, in those days, there were miles and miles and miles of orange groves, lemon groves, avocado farms. L.A. was almost rustic. It was beautiful. Bougainvillea everywhere, gardens everywhere. So it was a paradise that felt safe, totally safe from any kind of Nazi incursion. And our house was filled with amazing people, you know, like Garbo, Dietrich, Marx Brothers, Fred Astaire. It was astounding. Even, even as I say that to you, I think, God, did all of that happen to me? <laughs> well, I was wondering, <laughs> with your parents' parties, guest lists, which were essentially who's who in Hollywood or in the free world, what impression did that make upon you? Well, you know, so long ago, it's hard to say. But, of course, movie stars back then, unlike now, were 
highly original, eccentric, uh, tropical birds, you could say. <laughs> you, you know, probably today, Dietrich, Garbo, Humphrey Bogart would not have been able to get a job in the movies because they looked so bizarre. So I guess I must have been absolutely intrigued by these flamboyant people. And I must have been impressed by them. You know, we were seeing people around our swimming pool that I was seeing up on the big screen. And it must have had a profound effect on me. I'm sure it was part of the reason I went into the theater. Yeah. Early in my career, which coincided with the early years of NPR, we liked to describe radio as the theater of the mind. Would, mm -hmm. you, would you talk about the impact radio had on you in your teenage years? Oh, it had a huge impact. Uh, Basil Rathbone, who was the original Sherlock Holmes, had a radio program once a week, and he invited my brother and I to attend, and I was absolutely mesmerized by how some little machine could create, you know, the sound of horses and carriages and everything. Everything was in the imagination of the listener, which in fact is the heart of what we were doing in my dinner with Andre. People very often say, oh, you know, how, how could you possibly hold people's interest? Just two guys talking at a table. But in fact, I'm telling stories, uh, which I also do uh, in This Is Not My Memoir, you know, stories of the Andre character on a camel going into the Sahara, stories of the Andre character being buried alive. And what's powerful about that is each member of the audience is actually seeing when I tell these stories in their own mind, they see the Sahara, they see being buried alive, they see going to Tibet. So in fact, my dinner with Andre is really as spectacularly visual as Lawrence of Arabia or Bridge on the River Kwai, except you don't actually see the spectacle, you imagine it in your mind. So uh, it activates the imagination of the audience. And that was all very strongly affected by my early days of radio. Theater director Andre Gregory. We'll return with more of our conversation about his new book, This Is Not My Memoir, after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with theater director Andre Gregory. We've been discussing his new book, This Is Not My Memoir. The book was co-authored by the theater writer Todd London. Here's Andre Gregory talking about the collaborative process. 
Well, it was lovely because he's a lovely man and a very, very intelligent man. And as I had never written a book before, the task of structuring it would have been overwhelming. I couldn't have done it. And Todd was an enormous help in taking my material and structuring it into something which then with the help of my brilliant editor, Will Schwalbe, we were able to make into This Is Not My Memoir. A tiny little book in a way, 240 pages or something like that. It was originally 2,000 pages. Oh no. And yeah, <laughs> oh yes. And Todd was uh, very helpful in helping to whittle that down. Wow. You include some terrifying stories about your infancy, Andre. To give us an idea of your upbringing, please tell us about Icy. Oh, Icy was my, was my governess, a, a wonderful English woman. And the way she came to us was, uh, my mother was walking along the street in Paris one day, and she bumped into Hilda, who I nicknamed Icy, and was uh, with a friend of my mother's. And Icy, uh, oh, probably was about 20 years old, who intended to go back to England and became, become a hospital nurse. And my mother was bemoaning the fact that she and my father had to go on a trip together and they had no one to take care of little Andre. So I see Hilda said, how long would it be for? And they said, a couple of weeks. And she said, oh, I'll do it. That, that's no problem. So Icy came to live with us. My parents disappeared. And two weeks went by, two months went by. And she one day received a letter from them saying they were very busy. They were having problems coming back had she seen all the capitals of Europe? Of course she hadn't. So they said, well, we're going to send you some money. You can travel all over Europe, see the capitals and take little Andre with you. So Icy saved my life. I think if it hadn't been for her, I would have been in a mental institution. But before that, your parents actually fed you caviar exclusively? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my, my mother and grandmother thought caviar would be nourishing. So they started feeding me nothing but caviar and I was getting thinner and thinner. And suddenly, even to them, it became clear I was on the edge of malnutrition. So they took me to the hospital and the hospital started, I laugh about it, but of course it was probably for a little kid terrifying. Oh my God, and, and they would have been turned over to the authorities, putting secondol in your baby formula? Yeah, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no spoilers. <laughs> After college, you wanted nothing more than to attend the Yale School of Drama, and I can imagine how devastated you felt with the exceptionally nasty rejection you received. Did that dean ever learn about your successful career? Yeah, he, he said to me after the interview, you know, it's very hard 
to tell what a young person is like. They have no lines of experience in their face. But he said, occasionally, I do interview somebody like you who clearly has no talent whatsoever. Don't go into the theater. He said, the theater is hard enough if you're talented. Become a doctor, become a businessman. Uh, yeah, no, it was a very cruel rejection. And I, I just have no idea whether he lived long enough to see where my career went. I hope he did. I hope he did too. You and your wife, Chiquita, married young, still in your 20s. It seems she was accepting of your search for meaning through theater. How did your travel to Berlin and your experience at the Bertolt Brecht Theater change your life? Well, you know, if you're a painter and you've never seen Matisse or Cezanne, and then one day you do, your eyes just open wide with disbelief at the beauty of it all. And, you know, this was one of the greatest theaters of the 20th century. And in the book, you can, I think there's some pretty fascinating descriptions of going into communist Berlin and also descriptions of how amazing, amazing the theater was. You know, I myself, uh, I, I almost never go to the theater. The reason for that is without tooting my own horn, um, as a theater director, I think I'm pretty good at what I do. So going to mediocre theater is totally claustrophobic. The, the nice thing about starting to hate the book you're reading is you just shut it and put it in your library and it disappears forever. Or if you go to an exhibit of paintings and it's quite banal, you just walk out the door, but you're trapped in the theater. And uh, in fact, when we were doing my uncle Vanya for an audience of about 30 people, which eventually, as you know, Louis Malle turned into a great film, Vanya on 42nd Street. Uh, but when we were doing it in the theater, I invited Marty Scorsese to come and see it because I'd had the amazing task of playing John the Baptist in his movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. And I really wanted Marty to see my work. And he said, oh, I, I have to decline. You know, I'll, I'll, I'd be in that little audience of 30 people with no who I am. I hate the theater. I get claustrophobic at the theater and I wouldn't be able to leave. It would be terrible. So I said, no, don't say another word. I totally understand how you feel. From Lee Strasberg, head of the Actors Studio and father of the American method of acting, you learned that the theater in some fundamental way belongs to the actor. After reading that, I wondered, with your love for directing, why you didn't pursue a career in film, which clearly belongs to the director. I guess I didn't because I'm a technological idiot. I 
if I tried to make um, a protein shake in, <laughs> you know, in, in the machine, whatever it's called, it would probably explode and shoot protein shake all over the kitchen. I can't put a light in a light bulb. In fact, I was told a, a, a lovely story by the great orchestra conductor, Simon Rattle. He went to have tea with one of the greatest pianists in the world, an Austrian. And uh, his wife put on some milk to heat for the tea. And his wife went out of the house and the, the pianist said, oh my God, what do we do about the milk? <laughs> and Simon, Simon said, well, you just turn off the stove, you know? So I was always uh, a mess. And anything sadly to do with the home or with technology and film, film and theater, even though people don't often realize it, film and theater are about as different as painting and poetry, because film is a technical medium and theater is a medium for the actor. So much as I would have loved to have gone into film because of all these movie people we knew when I was a kid, I just didn't think it was my medium. I just knew the theater was. Three different regional theater jobs didn't work out as Audiences and board members did not appreciate your avant-garde and often outrageous productions. But when you formed your own ensemble, the Manhattan Project, the group became a very important part of the 1970s theater scene. In fact, your first production Alice in Wonderland was sensational. It was a watershed event in theater. Why did you view that production of Alice as a portrait of your family? Well, as you'll see, reading the book, I saw the world of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass as a world inhabited by mostly horrifying, cruel, sadistic men who are taking this little girl and just, you know, throwing her against the ceiling. Uh, in fact, the wonderful theater critic John Lahr, the son of Bert Lahr from The Wizard of Oz, John Lahr, when he wrote about the Alice, compared it to young people during the Vietnam War who had a kind of innocence that was being destroyed by the adult culture, the warlike adult culture. Well, let me, let me put it this way. In the Brothers Karamazov, Alyosha, one of, one of the main characters, one of the three uh, Karamazov brothers says, until people stop being cruel to children. There will always be wars. And so I think, I think you were seeing in my Alice, what for some children, not just me, is the madness, the claustrophobia, the terror 
of being a child in a screwed up adult world. And that extended to politics from your family to the war at the time. And in fact, later in the book, you write that the film, the 1981 film, My Dinner with Andre, was intensely political. And that's, that was lost on some people initially. Well, it was, it was understandably lost because we were very subtle, Wally and I, in the writing of that aspect. But it's an indictment of capitalism that begins with this writer who can't make a living. And there's this waiter, wonderful waiter in the movie who is obviously from his face just as intelligent and just as eccentric as the two main characters. His problem is he doesn't have money, so he has to wait on tables. There's, uh, there's a strong difference of classes in the movie. And also, there are many, 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 many references to fascism and many, many, many references to the danger of, Amer of, the, of the American people in going to sleep and not noticing that around them fascism is coming to birth. So on one level, apart from the entertainment level of the film and apart from the difference of opinions of these two oddballs, it's a movie warning America, wake up, fascism is coming. This film, My Dinner with Andre Feet, for anyone who hasn't seen it, features you in one extended conversation with your friend, the wonderful actor, writer, playwright, Wallace Shawn, and you are dining at this landmark restaurant, Café des Artistes, talking about theater, spirituality, fascism, communism, the pleasure of having a cup of coffee, this dialogue for the duration of nearly two hours. Roger Ebert, the late film critic, selected it as the best movie of the year. How did that film change your life, Andre? In many ways. One way was in my personal life, I could never keep my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> I had a strong dose of narcissism and a strong ego and I suppose a lot of insecurity. So in any evening with friends, talk, 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 talk at them, not listening to them. So talking for two hours, the longest role in the history of film, I think I got bored with myself and no longer felt the need uh, to be that person. And then on top of that, you know, when the movie first came out, Time magazine said it was a boring, amateurish film with no direction, no real actors. The New York Times said it's a Winnie the Pooh kind of fable, if you like that sort of thing, which I don't. So we were a flop. We, uh, this movie we had worked on for years was just going down the drain until, bless them, 
Siskel and Ebert, who had a huge influence at the time, gave it nine thumbs up, named it the best film of the year, and the rest is history. So, you know, you have to be changed in some way by being that successful. It's both pleasurable and confusing. <laughs> Later, Louis Mal directed another film, Vanya on 42nd Street, which you mentioned. This actually a theater rehearsal of your production of Chekhov's play, Uncle Vanya. You write that Vanya is your most autobiographical work. How so? One day, I was looking at the film, even though I'd, of course, seen the theater production a thousand times. And it suddenly occurred to me, oh, my God, the character of Yelena, that's my mother. Oh, my God, the character of Sonia, that's Icy. Oh, my God, Larry Pine playing Dr. Astrov, that's my totally nutty uncle. You know, I, I just realized, wow, I didn't know it, but I was casting seven or eight actors, all of whom are deep down people of my own family. But then, you know, I, I think everything we do is not a memoir as artists. It's all about what we know, what we've experienced, what we see. So, yeah, yeah, it was all my family. You write a lot about your spiritual searches throughout the years, gurus, learned rabbi. Do you believe it was destiny that led you to find love and marriage again with Cindy Klein? No, I think it was years of psychotherapy that opened, <laughs> opened my eyes. I've generally been drawn to very intelligent, very screwed up, very needy women. And I think years of psychotherapy got me rid of that drug. They say you, there's a tendency to always fall in love with your own poison. And I had been doing that a lot, but Cindy was an antidote to all the poison. Thank you, Freud and Jung. No kidding. Now, he could have been at your parents' party if he had been in L.A. instead of London. Absolutely. Absolutely. Page 40. Would you read the paragraph, please? Theater is a metaphor. Please. Yeah. Theater is a metaphor for life. You get kicked onto the stage just as we are born. You struggle for a few hours with your problems and those are the people playing scenes with you. And then you exit. The curtain falls, and usually the play is forgotten, just as I will be forgotten. Andre Gregory, you will not be forgotten. Oh, and, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> and I will not forget this conversation. Me too. Me too. It's I who thank you. Award-winning theater director Andre Gregory. His new book is This Is Not My Memoir. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. 
Monday at 11 a.m. Music and comedy at Naramana, the South's largest Jewish cultural series. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Kenevy. City Lights theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Archived interviews and full shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Have a safe and good weekend, and thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.